You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California. This is the number one podcast to help you win the day every day. Here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go. Welcome to episode 26 of Win the Day. And today we've got some big, big news on multiple fronts. This represents what will be the biggest change since we first started this show in 2019. Now, I believe we can learn from everyone. And in my line of work, I'm so grateful to have interviewed hundreds of people to learn more about their amazing journeys. If you've read my last book, Think and Grow Rich, The Legacy, you'll remember that the inspiration in the book came from real stories. So you could get a real blueprint to apply in your own life. And stories are also far more engaging and easier to remember too. It's like the opposite of a textbook. So from now on, literally starting with this episode, I've decided to spice things up. Drum roll, the Win The Day show is now going to start including interviews. There's a lot of inspiring people out there with incredible stories who have got so much expertise and experience to help all of you who are listening to the podcast or watching on YouTube, which includes me too, because I love learning from these people. And we're kicking off with one hell of a show today, as you'll see. Before we get started, I have another big announcement. For the last two months, while COVID-19 was taking over the world, I've been extremely busy working behind the scenes to create something that would help professionals and entrepreneurs take control of their life. I mean, this year will likely go down as the worst year our generation ever faces. So to help people get their lives back on track, I've partnered up with a good mate of mine and we've launched a virtual event, We Are Podcast House Sessions. We Are Podcast House Sessions. Since we're all stuck in our homes, we decided to get our friends, who are some of the biggest names in podcasting and entrepreneurship, to give you everything you need to take the reins of your life once more. Over three days, more than 50 experts will be giving you their exact strategies to succeed. They're not holding anything back. All their secrets will be yours. How they launched their own podcast, how they got guests, how they made their shows profitable from day one, how they built a huge business around it, how they leveraged podcasting to become the authority in their respective industries, and a whole bunch more. This is the world's first multi-day, multi-stream, multi-speaker virtual conference for podcasters. If you've got a podcast and want to take it to a whole other level, or if you've ever thought about launching a podcast and want it to be awesome and profitable from day one, this is the event for you. We've got companies like Success Magazine and VaynerMedia as partners. And seriously, you need to go to the event page to check out the speakers. We've got Jordan Harbinger, whose podcast gets 6 million downloads a month. We've got multiple four-time New York Times bestselling authors. We've got award-winning CEOs, you name it. Tickets are less than 200 bucks for three days with these superstars to work on your life and on your business. We want this to be the best event you've ever attended, period. Not the best virtual event, the best event overall. So don't miss this. To grab your ticket, go to wearepodcast.com. I'll also include a link in the show notes. Wearepodcast.com. It will change your life, guaranteed. Wearepodcast.com. All right, let's get into episode 26. I'm really excited about the first official guest we've ever had on the show, Michael Fox. 
He's a super successful, extremely well-connected dude, but what I love most about him is how down-to-earth and humble he is. 11 years ago, Michael and his two partners, one being his wife at the time, recognized that the future of retail was in personalization and customization, where shoppers could start creating the products they wanted rather than buying the generic ones that everybody else bought. The niche they found was women who wanted to customize their own shoes. Now, I've got a wife, a mum, and a sister, and they all love shoes. So this certainly sounded like a phenomenal concept from day one. So in 2009, Michael and his two partners launched Shoes of Prey. For the first time, women around the world were able to order shoes online that they had designed themselves. They were manufactured to their specifications, delivered to them quickly, and at a very competitive price. In the years after, their business raised more than $25 million and had partnered with companies like retail giant Nordstrom. Michael was on top of the world. Then it all came crashing down. In this interview, we talk about Michael's rollercoaster entrepreneurial journey that's taken him from his home country, Australia, to Asia, America, and Europe, and then back to Australia, and what lessons he learned along the way. We'll also talk about the impact on his personal relationships and what happened that made 2019, literally the next year after his business collapsed, the best year of his life. There's so much in this episode, how to start a business, how to raise money, how to be happy, how to respond to criticism, how to dust yourself off from failure, and how to partner with some of the most accomplished people on the planet. This one will blow you away. We'll also talk about Michael's new business, Fable Food Co., that's attracting huge attention around the world with its high-quality meat alternative. Grab a shovel. There's plenty of gold to dig out of this episode, so let's get started. All right. Well, Michael, thank you very much for, for being here. So excited to have you on. Yeah, thanks. Great to great to see you. Great, yeah, great to catch up. It's been a been a little while. We've had some emails back and forth, but yeah, good to good to see you. Not quite in the flesh, but at least your your face <laughs> for sure. And a few uh, a few life changes going on for you personally. But what about first of all, how are you doing in the in the coronavirus world that we're in? Yeah, yeah, not not too not too bad. Yeah, we're based on the Sunshine Coast um, in Queensland in Australia. Um, yeah, it's it's. Probably one of the best spots in the world if you're going to be isolated, uh, isolated somewhere. Um, yeah, we live live right near the beach, and beaches here have stayed open. And yeah, so on the personal and family front, it's been fine. Um, and then, yeah, on the business front, it's disrupted some parts of our business, but yeah, opened up uh, uh, opportunities in other parts. Um, yeah, and and actually overall, we're we're we've been growing nicely through this whole period. So um, yeah, I think we're sort of counting our lucky stars have been fortunate. Yeah, I love it. Well, let's let's start off by talking about building profitable companies. And then after that, we can delve into, you know, some of your own uh, vast experiences too. So the question that a lot of people ask me, which I wanted to throw out to you, a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs, they want to know what's the best way to come up with a new business idea? Do you have a set formula that you follow or is it more of an intuition that you've just honed after years and years in the, in the entrepreneurial world? Yeah, I think um, I think the big learning for me, and I I didn't do this early on, um, but I've done it with my last business or my current business, um, is like find what you are personally like deeply truly passionate about, and um, and pursue that. Like so, for me, just as an example, for my my last business, shoes of prey, I was custom women's shoes. 
Um, you know, I, I loved lots of parts of that business, but I was never like deeply passionate about women's shoes, um, <laughs> just not at all. And, and, uh, and um, you know, I, I love the, I love the building the brand. I love the manufacturing. I love the supply chain. I love the building partnerships and the, the sales and the retail, all of that I loved, but the actual product um, I just wasn't, wasn't into. Whereas with, with my new business, Fable, um, and, and we'll talk more about it later, I'm deeply passionate about the product and the mission and what we're working on. Um, and it just, it makes like such a difference. Like I, I wake up on a Saturday morning, you know, when I could be doing something else. And the only thing I want to do is read about what's going on in the industry or listen to podcasts relating to food and relating to what we're doing versus back with Shoes of Prey. I just, I didn't read fashion magazines in my spare time. And, and that, um, that difference, uh, you know, plays out. I can see it playing out in so many ways into like my like deep understanding of the customer, the value proposition that they're looking for. So, so yeah, I'd highly recommend starting something in an area that you're deeply passionate about. Yeah, I love it. So the answer is almost, I guess, the it's sort of both worlds, isn't it? Because you're, you're building up that intuition uh, that you've had, you know, from more experience in the game. There were some business ventures that I've been involved in uh, in the past where you reach a point where you say, well, if we have to pay for almost every aspect of this whole supply chain, whole supply chain, and it's not something that inherently I'm, I'm that passionate about, well, all of a sudden you, you have a moment. The, the big epiphany for me was when I was involved in a film and a book project where it was basically for the first time in my life at the age of about 32 years old, I thought, wow, this is this is the the new path that I want to follow. This is where I feel like I'm working with purpose for the for the first time, it just gives you a whole new level of, uh, of energy, doesn't it? I, I can't imagine what it would be like for you after, you know, working on women's shoes, which was obviously an amazing business and had a, an incredible global audience, but doing something now that you, after taking some, some reflection time to be able to, you know, start this one from scratch as a real purpose-driven, heart-centered project. Yeah, uh, it makes a, in my experience, makes a huge difference. Yeah, yep, yep. For sure. Well, once once you've got a concept for a new business idea, how important is research for to, to basically test that concept? And how early should you do that research? Yeah, I mean, I think probably the most critical thing to do early on, I think, yeah, customer research to understand the value proposition of what the customer who you're targeting, what they want, coupled with understanding the business model. I think those are, and, and that there, if there is a business model there, I think those are the two most important things to do early on. So yeah, for um, for Fable, yeah, it's a, uh, we've got a meat alternative that um, it's an alternative to slow cooked meats like pulled pork and braised beef, but it's made predominantly from mushrooms and other plant based ingredients. So before kicking off this business, um, I've been vegetarian for four and a half years, so eating all the Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers and other products in the market. So I had a good personal understanding of the category. Um, I've also talked to everyone around me trying to, you know, encourage them to turn vegetarian and hearing the feedback that they're giving on, you know, why they find it hard, you know, they miss meat, you know, the, some of the other feedback around the various meat alternative products. Um, yeah, just, and then, and then I just spent a lot of time in supermarkets, um, crippily watching people shop the meat alternatives. And then after they'd selected something or not selected something, going up and talking to them afterwards about um, the decision that they made. Um, and yeah, all of that research, hugely valuable to um, the path that we're going down now. 
Yeah. I see. I see that you've been very proactive about uh, about seeking that feedback. Whereas you see a lot of entrepreneurs who they feel like they have an idea, they're worried that someone else is going to steal it, so they don't go and talk to many people, and they're certainly not proactive about their about obtaining feedback. I'm not sure if that's an ego thing or if they just uh, think they're onto a winner and they just want to go ahead. But I mean, how many companies do we see that that they they launch, and how many tens of thousands of dollars and years and things wasted because do you, do you yeah. feel like that's an, is it like an ego thing that, or what is it around people who, yeah, who worry about the new business idea being stolen by someone else who they, who they talk to? I think it's an, I mean, I think it's a natural concern. Like if you've got, if you think you've got these insights, it's a really big potential idea. I think it's a natural concern that, um, that you might want to protect that. Um, but the, in my experience anyway, like building businesses, you know, I think there's some quotes like 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. Um, like the actual idea itself, if you've had the idea, there's probably a thousand other people who've had the idea. Um, your success with that idea will come down to how well you execute on it. Um, and so the, the pros of getting feedback uh, from people early on far outweigh the risk of someone else stealing your idea. Because even if someone steals your idea, like are they going to be good at executing and making it happen? You know, the reality is most people... Most people aren't going to do that. They're not going to go leave their existing job or whatever they're doing now to start a new idea. Um, and then even if they do, the reality also is it's, it's tough to start a business and, and most, people don't, most businesses don't succeed. Um, so, yeah, I think the benefits of getting the feedback from people early on far outweigh taking your idea and beating you at it. And if they beat you at it, then... Yeah, you're probably not the best executor in the first place. That's right. That's the that's the world of business. And yeah, well said. What about so? What about the shoes of prey concept? When did you have a feeling with that that you were onto a winner? Yeah. So yeah, there's a, a, uh, a lot of interesting learnings out of this, and it was ten years of my, of my life. Um, so uh, yeah. So for uh, for that one, I mean, we, we had a pr- pretty early on. We we were we had the idea that this was a concept that had really good potential. Um, and I think that was a, yeah, that was a function of, we went and talked to everyone around us about the idea and asking them, you know, would you want to design your own shoes? Talking to all the women in our lives, would you want to design your own shoes? And like the overwhelming feedback was like, yes, that would be amazing. You know, everyone's got this dream of being creative and being able to create something unique and having some kind of fashion item uh, that, that they've had a, uh, they've, in creating and being able to wear it. Um, so the response was kind of overwhelming from people that we spoke to. Uh, and so then we ran a test. Um, so we sort of set up a basic kind of supply chain and, and working with a manufacturing partner in, in just outside Hong Kong in China who could produce shoes. And before we built a website or anything, we just used photographs of the different elements of the shoes. And we presented that to our friends and said, um, hey, these are normally going to retail for $250. We'll do it for half price and you can design using these images. Would you want to do it? And we kind of emailed that out to like 100 of our friends and about 25 of them um, paid the money to design the shoes with us. Um, and so we thought that was pretty good kind of response rate. People were putting money down to do it. So it was, we thought that was a pretty good indication that, that this might have good potential. 
Yeah. What about things like minimum order quantities if you're ordering through Asia? Was that a challenge when you're trying to figure out, like to test whether or not this is a good idea? And some of these manufacturers, I'm sure, got back to you saying, yeah, if you want to uh, produce 50 million units, then we'll uh, <laughs> then we'll do it for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Had lots of funny uh, lost in translation conversations on that where we'd go and explain this concept. Hey, design your own shoes one at a time. And they'd say, oh, yes, we can supply your shoes. Uh, yeah, minimum order quantity, 10,000. We're like, no, we need to order one. We need a minimum order quantity, one. <laughs> oh, you mean 1,000? Mm, no, we can't do 1,000. No, not even 1,000. One. Um, I mean, we found we managed to find a couple of, uh, there were a couple of little shoe stores in Hong Kong that did design your own shoes. So our initial kind of manufacturing partner was one of them. Um, so they were already had a, it was a small operation. We were never going to be able to scale with them, but they were happy to partner with us um, initially and they were already doing shoes one at a time. So, so that's how we started. Yeah, I love it. Well, what, what about, you know, obviously the journey had a, had a bit of a public ending that was obviously not the outcome that you and your, and your co-founders and the whole team wanted. What were the circumstances? Was it about 10 years later, wasn't it? When, when the business uh, came undone, what were the circumstances when you thought you had this great concept and all of a sudden, 10 years later, not so much? What was the circumstances around that? Yeah, so the, the, basically the journey was we, we initially did really well in this niche of women who were passionate about designing their own shoes. And these were kind of creative women who... Uh, had a good sense of their own style and design, um, and they just they loved the concept. Like, yeah, the ability to design their own shoes. This was just like totally new, out of this world. Just spoke perfectly to those creative elements that they had. Um, we also did well in some niches like wedding shoes. You know, uh, that, that's that's obviously a good place women want, would want to do something like this, um, as well as like small, large, wide, and narrow sizes. Um, could because we could produce efficiently one at a time. We could service those people who can't buy shoes in their size normally. So we're doing well in this in these little niches and getting like really high net promoter scores because in those niches, the customers really, really love the product. Um, but we were never going to be able to scale in those niches. So we went out and did our market research to understand could the mass, would the mass market consumer want to buy Shoes of Prey Shoes? And um, we could see all these customers coming to our website. Like we literally had 10,000 customers coming to our website every day uh, and we had really low conversion rates. And so we started talking to all these customers who were coming and not buying. And what we realized is most of the women coming to our website weren't those niche customers. They were mass market fashion customers. And when we talked to them, they said, yeah, look, I love the idea of designing my own shoes. That's why I'm coming to your website to have a look, spending time on here. But there's three things that are stopping me buying. Um, the first one is uh, we want a simplified shoe design experience. It's you know, our, initial, our initial shoe design experience was targeted to that really creative customer. So it was very free form. The mass market consumer wanted to be guided through the process and have a simpler process. Uh, the second thing is they wanted a uh, shorter lead time. We had a like five-week turnaround time uh, on our shoes, which is, yeah, if you're organizing your wedding shoes, you've got more than, you're doing that more than five weeks in advance. If you're small, large, wide or narrow sizes, you'll take anything. You don't, don't mind if it's five weeks or, or more. But if you're a mass market fashion consumer, you're often thinking about a purchase. You know, you need delivery within two weeks. So that was the second thing. And then the third thing was price point. We were charging about a 30% premium over the same quality shoes. And the mass market fashion consumer said, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to do it, but I don't want to pay a premium. So we looked at those three things uh, and, we, and we realized, well, we can, we can execute on those three things. Um, we're going to need to go out and raise venture capital to do it because we're going to have to build our own shoe factory. Um, 
build our own shoe factory to get the lead times down and, the, and get more efficient to get the unit costs down um, because at the time we were just working with that little supplier outside of Hong Kong who had like two shoe stores, so they, they weren't scaled up. How old were you at that point when you realized, wow, I have my own shoe uh, manufacturing facility? Yeah, well, this was so this was about three years in. We'd done really well in the first three years just in those niches. We hadn't raised any venture capital, it was all self funded, um, growing out of its own cash flow. But yeah, it was about three years in we had this insight. Um, and uh, yeah, so we needed, to, we needed to build our own factory and we also needed to hire more software engineers to simplify the shoe design experience. So that's when we went out and raised venture capital. And the story there was, hey, we're doing well in these niches. Um, we need to uh, build our own factory, hire these software engineers because there's this, here's all the research we've done. There's this big mass market fashion opportunity and we need to kind of cross the chasm from these niche customers over to the mass market. Um, and so that's then what we spent the next, we spent the next five years executing on you know, building our own shoe factory in China, doing shoes one at a time is a, is a massive undertaking. Um, so that, that took us a good <laughs> five years to get up and running, scaled, running efficiently. And yeah, we brought the delivery time down from five weeks to we averaged 11 days in our, in our last couple of years. And we brought the unit costs down so we could bring our retail prices down. Um, and we built our software engineering team out to about 10 people and simplified the shoe design experience. So, so yeah, all of that took about five years. Um, and then the problem for us was we, we, we basically we built the whole value proposition that the mass market fashion customer had asked for um, and we realized it just wasn't resonating. Like we grew sort of three or four X over those five years, um, but we, we grew to like maybe 12 million Aussie dollars a year in revenue, but we really needed to be at about 30 million a year revenue to break even because now we had all these fixed costs of a shoe factory and software engineers. So our break even point was about 30 million a year. Based on our customer research, if the mass market customer had have responded the way that our research said she would, we should have been at like 100 million a year revenue. You know, we're in Nordstrom stores in the US. We had, you can design your own shoes on the women's shoe floor and we're in all, in all the right places for the mass market customer. But yeah, now we'd built this value proposition. We could watch how she behaved on our website and in the Nordstrom stores. And what we realized was um, we got our research wrong. So the mass market customer thinks she wants to customize. So if you ask her, she consciously, she, you know, conscious mind, she thinks she wants to customize them. I mean, who wouldn't? You kind of love the idea of being creative and designing your own shoes. So you ask her, she'll tell you that's what she wants to do because she thinks she does. But deep down subconsciously, she, she doesn't want to do that. She doesn't really have the confidence to do it. She doesn't know if the shoes are going to look good. Um, she doesn't really have the time to sit there and design the shoes. Um, and so deep down subconsciously, she really just wants a fashion designer and brand to tell her what's on trend and what to wear. She wants to see what's popular on Instagram and buy that exact shoe and that, and that brand, which is kind of the antithesis of designing her own shoes. So what she consciously thought she wanted is the opposite to what she actually really wanted. Uh, and we built our whole value proposition and business around what the opposite, yeah, the opposite of what she, want, what she actually really wanted. And so that's kind of what brought us unstuck. Yeah, this this was research that you continued to conduct every year or every few months, or was it something that you you did comprehensively early on and you just ran with that assumption? No, it was it was constant research. Yeah, I mean we were running surveys with all of these people who come into our website and weren't buying. I mean we went Nordstrom are the biggest retailer of women's shoes in the US. Um, we would took we were they were well bought into the concept working. They thought it would work as well. Their, their research told them the same thing. Um, uh, so yeah, we went to experts like them to, to, to get feedback on it. Um, and yeah, they even invested in the business. Uh, um, 
yeah, so it was like, it was, it was, yeah, we ran focus groups. Like we did, we did everything that we watched how consumers behaved in different environments. We did everything that we could, that I think we could have done, except the one thing we didn't do because we couldn't was actually watching how consumers, female fashion shoppers behaved when designing their own shoes. And the reason we couldn't do that is no one had built this before, so it didn't exist. So it was only once we built the value proposition and you could go to shoesofprey.com, simple design process, order and receive in 11 days, good price point. It was only once we built all of that, we could watch how the customer behaved on the site and then she wasn't buying. And then we'd talk to her and delve into like, why didn't you buy? And then that helped us un- uncover, yeah, okay, this this research that we've done on what customers are telling us is actually different to what they really want. And um, yeah, we're a bit screwed because of that. Wow. Was, was there a single moment or conversation where you and your partners had thought like it, the, the realization where it all dawned on you that, wow, this thing that we thought was our, I, I know it's obviously not the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow type thing that you were aiming for at any stage with this, but it's a business that you were continuing to grow. When was, can you, can you take us into that moment when you realized for the first time that it was irrecoverable, that no matter what you did, it was basically all over. The, the dream for this particular business, which was 10 years of your life, was over. It's oh, a good, good question. It was, it was probably more like uh, ripping a Band-Aid off slowly than a, <laughs> than a single, uh, single moment. So it was kind of even more painful <laughs> because of that. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was gradual. Like, like even as we kind of, you know, we, as we gradually simplified our shoe design experience, like our sales were going up every time we would do that. Like the, the research wasn't completely wrong, but the sales weren't going up anywhere near as much as we'd expected. So we could see like, oh, we're making progress. It's not as much progress as we want, but it's not like, oh, we need to keep, we need to keep going because we, we think this will still work. And, and we sort of convinced ourselves that um, uh, it needed all of those pieces of the value proposition to work. So if, and, it, and I still think that, that, that the logic made sense. It was just the research was wrong. So and even if we simplified the shoe design experience, if our delivery times were still four weeks, yeah, okay, we might get a bit of growth, which we were seeing, but we wouldn't get the, the sort of good scaled growth that we were looking for. Um, and so it was like it was like over a few years, it was like, well, we're not growing as much as we need to, but we're growing enough to keep pursuing it and to raise more capital. Um, venture, venture capital firms and Nordstrom was still on board with it through that. And so it was only really when we delivered the whole value proposition, I suppose that moment came, yeah, when we delivered the whole value proposition our sales are like less than half of where they need to be. Um, we're running out of cash in the bank. It's going to be hard to raise. Like we went out to our investors, and yeah, it was clear we weren't going to be able to raise more money easily, um, or, or even at all in the end. Um, and and yeah, so it wasn't a single moment or conversation, but yeah, it was yeah, ripping a bandaid off slowly, working it out. And, and I feel like one of the the most unsung elements of being an entrepreneur is the mental health battle, the roller coaster. I mean, you've seen it now. You, you and I have both seen it with various businesses and projects and things that we've been involved in. How was how was your mental state at the time? Were you on the brink of burnout? Were you feeling down on yourself? Where where were you at mentally while all of that stuff was starting to unravel? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was definitely tough. Um, yeah, I was living in LA. Uh, yeah, so I didn't necessarily have all my family and the, my, I had some friends over there that I'd made, obviously, but not the kind of friendship groups that you grew up with and family around. So I was, I was married, so I had my, had my wife and, and did have some good friends there. But yeah, those kind of things made it harder. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it was tough. Like, yeah, ten, you know, this vision that we'd had, we'd had all this success early on. We'd raised, we'd raised kind of 35 million Aussie dollars, sort of 20, 25 million US dollars from investors, partnered with Nordstrom. Like, there are all these exciting things that had kind of built up over time. And then, yeah, suddenly sort of, or gradually coming to the realization that this wasn't going to work out. Um, it was, it was hard on, you know, a, a, there's not even that really adjectives to describe it. I mean, I think the things that um, helped me to get through it were um, like, like reflecting on the fact that, um, uh, you know, we were dealing in women's shoes and we were dealing with investors' money. You know, th- these are these are important things, but it's not like we're dealing with life and death. You know, it's not like if we were we a medical company that's you know people weren't dying because of because we were failing. Um, so was, I, I kind of spent a lot of time reflecting on well, you know, I've got my health. My family's, we've got our health. My, actually, my first son was born kind of during all of the, this challenging period. And that was a kind of a bit of a life revelation that, okay, well, Shoes to Pray is going poorly at the moment. My career is uh, in a bit of a shambles and, and all those dreams are, but I've got a healthy son and this is a wonderful life experience. Um, Puts it all into perspective. Yeah, exactly. That all that helped put it into perspective. Yeah, that's, that's it. So I think that, that's kind of the big thing that helped me get through. Um, and then, yeah, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, yeah, one of the things I learned from that experience was as tough as things can be in the moment, um, you, you can get through those things and come out and, and enjoy yourself on the other side of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think a lot of it, myself included, I, I've really enjoyed the, the posts that you've written, just the reflections on the, on the journey. It's so real. It's so raw. And I think it's really inspiring to people. Uh, obviously, once that happened, the journey wasn't over for you. It was it was the end of a just a single chapter in a book that that you were you know you're in the process of, of writing and doing all these amazing things out now. So, I wanted to quickly bring up a quote that you actually wrote a year ago when you were reflecting on that shoes of prey journey. Uh, I always hate my own words being read back to me, so uh, <laughs> I apologize. I'm scared. <laughs> you said, if I ever find myself in a position where I'm attempting to change consumer behavior, I will ensure I've peeled back the layers to truly understand the psychology of my target customer. So I'll, if I ever find myself in a position where I'm attempting to change consumer behavior, I will ensure I've peeled back the layers to truly understand the psychology of my target customer. Do you still stand by that, and and how can aspiring how can aspiring entrepreneurs uh, action that in a practical sense? Yeah, so yeah, definitely still stand by that, and I mean that just speaks to we were trying to get consumers to change their behaviour by designing shoes rather than ordering pre existing shoes, and our market research failed because we we listened to what the customer consciously thought she wanted, and we didn't peel back the layers to understand the deep sort of psyche of what she was thinking and what was driving her to buy shoes. And yeah, maybe if we'd done that, we might've uncovered that she actually, she said she wanted to design shoes, but she didn't really want to. Um, so yeah, definitely still stand by that learning. Um, and I think there's two practical ways to deal with that. Um, one is to actually do that deep psychological research. If you are trying to change consumer behavior. Um, and if I, yeah, would definitely go deeper than we did with shoes of prey. If I was doing that again, the other way to get around that is to not change consumer behavior. Um, and that's the lesson that I've taken um, with Fable. So, and, and yeah, to, I, I to delve into that a little bit, um, rather than trying to get 
you know, I've been vegetarian for four and a half years. I've tried to convert everyone around me to being vegetarian. I think I've convinced two people. I caught up with one of them the other day. They're not vegetarian anymore. So um, I'm trying to change people to become vegetarian. Either I'm not good at it or it's hard to do. It's probably a bit of both. You'll have to throw in some cash incentives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good idea. Maybe that would work. Um, probably not. <laughs> Um, so yeah, like I've realized ch- trying to convince people to eat hemp seed patties and falafel balls and salad, um, you know, that most people, most people, I- I've done it, but most people don't, uh, don't want to do that. They still love the taste and texture of meat. So the learning for me there is don't try to change their behavior and make them eat hemp seed patties and falafel balls. Give them meat, something that has the taste and texture of meat, but just don't make it from animals, uh, make it from other ingredients. And so, so yeah, that's that's the you know we're not the only ones doing this. Like Beyond and Impossible and others are, are doing meat alternatives, and that's the kind of approach that the whole industry's this alternative protein industry is taking. Don't try to convince people to change their behaviour and not eat meat. Give them meat, but just make it from something different. And and so it means that in all of our product development, our big focus is on making sure that the product has the taste and texture of meat. Like that's the number one part of the value proposition. And and if once that's achieved, yeah, it means you don't have to change consumer behavior. They can eat the same way, cook the same way, uh, all the dishes that they've done before, but just doing it without animals. Do you, do you feel fortunate? It seems like with Shoes of Prey, you were, you were out on a limb so much trying to do this yourselves. Do you feel more comfortable being in an industry now with Fable, which obviously we'll talk a lot more about shortly, do you feel more comfortable knowing that you're part of a massively growing industry? Obviously, you're doing it in your own way, but you've got you know, as much research as you could possibly want to help underpin some of the decisions that you're making to take some of the guesswork that it seems like experience has taught you that even when you have the research, there's can be a lot more than just what the research suggests. Yeah, uh, it's definitely, uh, I'm finding the experience much, uh, yeah, much easier because of that. There's pros and cons, right? So there's other, it means there's other people doing meat alternatives, which uh, from a I love from a mission perspective. I want to end industrial animal agriculture. If it's if it's fable that does it, amazing. Uh, if it's other people who do it, that's still that's still achieving the mission. So that's really good. Uh, but from a purely business perspective, putting up putting aside the mission, it means we've got competitors in the space, and you know consumers have a choice of different products. So that's the con of operating in a category that other people are operating in. But the pro is yeah, just like you described. There's other people doing it too. We can learn from each other. Um, you can I can actually go into the supermarket and watch how consumers shop the alternative protein section whereas with shoes of prey there was no other website or no, nowhere else that you could design your own shoes so i couldn't watch how consumers did it yeah, you get in trouble if you end up in uh girls bedrooms uh uninvited <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some <right>. market research <laughs> exactly yeah 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 what what about on the shoes of prey side just to just to round off on you know on that incredible chapter in your life what was the biggest personal cost to you after you know was it time was it money were there other things after 10 years of being on that journey what was the personal cost the biggest personal cost rather yeah i mean there were i guess there were a few there was the yeah financial side you know i'd worked for 10 years on well well below market salary and had put quite a bit of my own money into the business beforehand so i'd sort of Ended that ten year ten years in my late thirties with uh, you know not much money to to my name. So whereas if I'd stayed down the corporate path, you know, I'd be in a different place financially. So that that was a cost. Um, another cost I wouldn't directly attribute to Shoes of Prey, but it was definitely a catalyst. So um, uh, one of my other co-founders in Shoes of Prey, Jody, she, Jody and I were, were married when we started Shoes of Prey. 
Um, we divorced partway through the experience of the Shoes of Prey journey. Um, we stayed stayed really good friends, stayed good business partners, and um, you know, still to this day, we we chat nearly weekly. Um, but definitely, Shoes of Prey. You know, it wasn't because of Shoes of Prey. We we met at twenty one and just grew apart in our twenties. But Shoes of Prey was definitely a catalyst. Like working, living with the person that you're starting a business with puts uh, all sorts of strains and pressures on a relationship um, and marriage. Um, so that, yeah, that was a that that was another piece that was a fairly big personal cost through it all. Um, yeah, I'd say those are probably the big two. I feel like marriage, you know, has enough strains as itself. I can't imagine throwing in the, the added complexities of raising tens of millions of dollars and trying to figure out manufacturing and building an international team and, and yeah, just the, the convoluted moments around doubting your market research and, and signing deals with some of the biggest department stores in the world. It's a, it's a lot for your relationship, but I guess it says a lot about the character of each of you when you still are able to maintain a, a very cordial relationship these days and, and being respectful that although it was, you know, each of your journeys have forked, that you still respect each other and that you're, yeah, that you're there to, to support each other. Yeah, no, thanks. It was, um, yeah, yeah, it was a, definitely a tough period, but yeah, we, we, we were, um, it was a mutual decision to separate. I think that made it easier. Um, I think a lot of marriages, you know, the, the couples don't stay on good terms. Um, if it's one, one-sided, I can see that would be much harder. So yeah, we both wanted to stay friends, actively wanted to stay friends and actively wanted to keep working together because we were, you know, both wanting to make shoes a prayer success. So, so we really kind of took a lot of work, but to make sure that, okay, if we're going to separate, let's make sure that the friendship remains and the and the business partnership remains um so i guess we kind of really focused on that and we were yeah able to able to achieve that yeah i, su- I suppose a business partnership is, is like a marriage in itself so when you find yourself <laughs> when when they <laughs> when they overlap it can be tough but so after after that you went to you went to europe you went to denmark for for you know almost half a year of soul searching and now you're living on the on the sunshine coast and i know after the grind that you had living in la trying to get all this stuff done and lifestyle became such a huge focus of you, and I guess quality of health and and mental health and everything, all all part of that. Uh, a few months ago, you wrote that 2019 was the best year of your life, which I bet you would not have in any way expected would be the case if you had a you know had a crystal ball looking forward. What contributed to 2019 being the best year of your life? Yeah, so it was a, it was a, yeah, t- totally wouldn't have expected that. I mean, yeah, Shoes of Prey, I've, I finished up with Shoes of Prey in the middle of 2018. So that first half of 2018 was, yeah, pretty horrible, like laying off 200 people, um, shutting down a factory, uh, the kind of 10 year dream ending, telling investors that we can't give, can't get them a, re- a return, like, can't even get them their money back, let alone a return. Um, so yeah, I would not have expected that to play out. Um, I think the things that, um, the things that drove that, um, yeah, taking six months off, yeah, as you kind of touched on, uh, my wife's Danish, so we went over to Denmark for six months. We kind of had to do that because our, our second child was born when I left Shoes of Prey. My visa, visa was, US visa was attached to Shoes of Prey, so I had like 60 days to leave the country. Um, uh, and yeah, Asta was like two months from being born, so Katrine was like butting up against the period where she couldn't fly anymore. Katrine's not Australian, so we wouldn't have had health coverage in Australia, in Australia to have the baby. So Denmark was the only place we could go to have, have, a, have actually have the baby without <laughs> um, having to fork out all the costs ourselves. 
a whole new basket of stresses to, to deal with. Yeah, no, no, adding all of that to the mix. Yep, yep. <laughs> and with a one and a half year old in tow. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we went to Denmark, but it turned out really well. So yeah, we we kind of Katrine's parents have a have a um, house in Copenhagen and sort of on the bottom floor, and there was kind of a floor in the middle where we all hung out. So it was really nice to spend some time Katrine's family when the kids were young. Um, and after being born, and yeah, for me it was just a great period to have a reset. Like I didn't put any, didn't have to have any pressure to like find a job or work out what I was going to do next. I just knew, okay, there's six months. I can focus on being a dad and um, just do whatever I feel like doing. And and that sort of led me to because I've been, I just ended up reading a lot of books. Uh, and because I've been vegetarian for four and a half years, I just ended up reading more about industrial animal agriculture. There were other areas that I was really passionate about and started exploring too, like community living and some different areas like that. But I just ended up reading reading all these different areas that I was passionate about. And then towards the end of the six months, started thinking about, okay, well, I mean, I'm passionate. There's like two or three areas I'm deeply passionate about. Um, is there a business model or something that I could... Well, actually, actually, I didn't even want to start a new business. I was thinking like, okay, maybe I'll go work for in calories. Where, where is there growing? alternatives is a space that's been growing growing really quickly for the last couple of years so I thought all right I'll go work for someone else in a meat alternative space that so it kind of allowed me the six months allowed me to go and just un unhindered and no time pressure just go and explore whatever I wanted to just where my intellectual curiosity took me and I think that helped me to narrow in back to your very first question around um yeah around like finding what my passion was and where I might want to do something um, and so, so that was, a, that was really good. Uh, yeah. Then we made, as you touched on, we made the kind of lifestyle decision to come when we came back to Australia to live on the Sunshine Coast. Um, uh, I grew up in, uh, in Brisbane, which is yeah, where, where I know, uh, uh, you and, and Mark and, and the rest of your family. Um, so we want, and my fam- my extended family is all Brisbane Sunshine Coast based. So with two young kids in tow, we wanted to be back near all of them, grandparents and aunties and uncles, all that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, it's much much cheaper costs of living on the Sunshine Coast than down in Sydney. So we uh, we kind of bud- we plan initially planned to go back to Sydney, budgeted to rent a house in kind of inner Sydney. You know, it's like fifteen hundred a week or two grand a week to rent a play- a nice sort of three bedroom house. So we sort of took that budget and looked at what we could get on the Sunshine Coast, and yeah, we've ended up renting a house like literally right on the beach. The um, beach is a hundred meters to my uh, left as I sit here. Little private walk track through the bush, and we're on the beach. We've got a pool, giant barbecue perfect for cooking plant-based meat um and uh yeah so just the lifestyle here is is amazing great back back being around family reconnecting with kind of friends that we grew up with um and so yeah it's a combination of now doing what i'm really deeply passionate about the living environment uh and then also just the family side of things like i'm just loving being a dad and 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 you've uh you're, you're having you're having experience too like it's just the whole perspective um and uh yeah all of that all of that for me has just added up to yeah 2019 was was genuinely uh, amazing just deep personal satisfaction funny isn't it with with children the experience that you could just i've always wanted to have kids but i just never understood the amount of meaning that it creates in your life when you you just learn so much about the world from from your kids like sophie our daughter who turns one in about a week uh Things like where you realize that things like dancing, it's just a completely innate human behavior. They, they just instinctively dance at, at, 
at eight months old or whenever they do it, it's just, it's such a, I don't know, it just brings so much joy and, and meaning into your life. But what do you, what do you feel when you see media outlets who are, you know, you're getting a lot of amazing coverage about Fable, this awesome new business venture that you've got, yet a lot of these media outlets in the past have described you, you know, the biggest media outlets in the country describe you as a failed entrepreneur and, you know, part of collapsed company, uh, shoes of prey. Does, do you just try and ignore that or does it motivate you to succeed? Yeah, it's a good, good question. I mean, it's a whole combination of feelings. Like it's definitely a, like, yeah, hit to your uh, 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 ego or, um, uh, yeah, kind of feeling of self-belief. And I, and I think that, that also kind of contributed to my initial thoughts when I came back to Australia was to go work for another company because I just like literally the thought of starting another business made me feel ill. Like my, my self-confidence was down having, you know, why did you, you know, I had good understanding of why Shoes of Prey failed, but, you know, it still felt like, you know, I'd, I'd messed some things up in, in you know, had, we'd missed the, basically messed up that market research and didn't get those insights right. And I was like, well, okay, yeah, can I, you know, can I succeed in business or should I, should it, maybe I'm not made out to be an entrepreneur. So, yeah, and reading obviously contributes to that. Um, so it was a mix of those feelings. Um, I think the, on the flip side, spending the time to like deeply reflect on um, the Shoes of Prey experience. Um, like I think I helped build my confidence again. Like we we had done a lot of things really well. And if our market research had have been right, um, it would be an amazing business today. Like I think we got, of course, we made lots of other mistakes too, but I think we got all the other pieces of the business, you know, mostly right. Um, it was just that one insight that we, uh, that we didn't, didn't get right. So that sort of brought a bit of confidence back. Um, and then when sort of kicking off Fable, and the reason, only reason I ended up starting a business again was I came back to Australia, wanted to work in the alternative protein space. There were just no jobs. Like everyone's a, everyone in the category is a startup um, and there was no jobs in the category. So it was like either my decision was either do I go back to maybe go back to the corporate Something like that, or if I if I'm deeply passionate about this space and want to be in it, I'm going to have to start a business because there's I can't get a job in the category, so because there just aren't any jobs. So um, that's what kind of drove me back to starting business. And initially, yeah, I didn't really didn't genuinely didn't want to do it, but then once I started doing it, like it felt it felt good again being in those early stages. I went back and talked to all of the old shoes of prey investors. I mean, I've been talking to them talking to them all the time anyway, but talk to them about the idea and they were excited about the idea. Their feedback was, Look, yeah, Michael, we'll, we'll, we'll back you again. Like if you get this to a place where you're, where you're raising money and, and it can work, like we'd, we'd love to look at it and back you again. And yeah, it was deeply satisfying to have um, when we raised our round of funding in November to have Blackbird Ventures and Grok Ventures, which is Mike Cannon Brooks's family office, to have those two um, co-lead the round because they were two large investors in Shoes of Prey, hadn't had lost all their money in Shoes of Prey. So that with me, so that was kind of deeply satisfying and and um, yeah, helped helped on the confidence side and yeah, and I just found myself loving what I was doing again. So um, so yeah, I think that's made it easy to yeah. Yeah, and and the media's the media has now been supportive too. Like the the media, you know, if you reflect on why the media exists, it headlines they 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 want to drive clicks and advertising revenue. So a headline about you know shoes of praise collapse that's a great sounding headline and and sort of laying into the people behind it that that gets you know that's the kind of almost 
business industry gossip that people want to read. You know, I find myself drawn to those kind of articles too. It's just an innate human psychology. So, you know, that's the reason that journalists want to write those kind of headlines and it doesn't change the emotional feeling from it, but at least you can have a logical reflection on it that, you know, that's, that's life. That's what, that's what the media is always going to do. Um, doesn't mean it's, you know, that there might be some truth to it, but it doesn't mean you have to, uh, and yeah, uh, feel, feel, uh, awful and not do anything because of that. Yeah. And it doesn't factor in the future as well. Right. Exactly, you as a, yeah. yeah. As a failed entrepreneur is, uh, yeah, it means that I guess yeah, they're only taking into consideration one aspect of the past and not factoring in all the assets like the investors and people that you, uh, the investors that you mentioned and just the network and learnings and everything else that you, that you bring to the table. But at the same time, you've got that carrot of going back to the corporate world where I feel like the, the thing for, for people who have a profession, like a corporate job Monday to Friday, they don't realize how lucky they have it when they can just work five days a week, they can switch their phone off on weekends, they can have a, a six-figure salary and, and just not have the stress uh, of anyone else who is an entrepreneur where you don't really have, have an off switch. And, and like you said, from the moment you sort of activate that new business idea, it is potentially a, a seven days a week thing for an indetermined or undeterminable amount of, uh, of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Well, you've got... Fable now, which is just such an incredible story. Obviously, still very, very young in the journey. Can you let us know a bit about a bit about Fable and the product and who the market is and what you're trying to achieve? Yeah. So yeah, once I had that uh, realization that uh, like, if, okay, if I want to go into this category, I got to start something myself. Um, I, I started thinking through how I would want to, what kind of product I'd want to develop, how I'd want to enter the category. Um, and I didn't want to compete head to head with the existing players in the market, you know, beyond an impossible between them have raised nearly a billion US dollars, um, plenty of good companies in Europe and some good ones in Australia too. Um, but most, so I wanted to differentiate and find another uh, gap in the market. Um, most of those businesses are doing um, minced beef or ground beef and, and doing burger patties. So first thought was, okay, well, there's plenty of other types of meat out there. I'll, I'll, I should try to replicate something else. Uh, and then secondly, um, I'm a pretty healthy eater. Yeah, shop at my local farmer's markets, do a lot of my own cooking, uh, and I try to eat a healthy kind of minimally processed diet. So my thought was, yeah, would it be possible to create a meat alternative out of really natural, healthy, whole food ingredients? Um, uh, and so it was kind of those two insights um, sort of led me to kind of researching more in the space. Uh, I don't, obviously don't have a food background, so I just started talking to anyone in the food industry who would um, be willing to listen to me uh, and answer my questions. And that kind of led to the thought of using mushrooms as a base ingredient for a meat alternative. Um, so most meat alternatives are made from textured vegetable protein. So it's kind of the, the protein is stripped out of a soybean or a, or a pea. Uh, and then um, it's this high heat, high pressure process to um, turn it into a texture that's like a, like a minced beef. Uh, and then you add different flavors and ingredients. And so most meat alternatives are made from textured vegetable protein. So I was exploring, could you make a meat alternative out of mushrooms? Um, mushrooms are really natural, um, healthy uh, uh, food that we should be eating more of. Um, and they've kind of got a lot of the umami flavors of meat in them. Um, it's just like the textures, you know, not really meat-like uh, for most mushrooms. So that sort of led me to researching mushrooms. I ended up meeting the two guys who are now my co-founders. So Jim Fuller um, started as uh, sorry started his career as a chef. He grew up in Texas, so grew up on all like slow cooked meats, like pulled pork, braised beef. Uh, started his career as a chef, worked as a chef for ten years in Texas, 
wanted to understand the science behind what he was cooking. Uh, so he went and studied agricultural science uh, and chemical engineering. Uh, and he majored in mycology in his agricultural science degree, which is mushroom science. And then he's worked as a mushroom scientist in Australia for the last 12 years. Talk about uh, a niche. <laughs> yeah, so he's got yeah, yeah, he's got this weird skill set of like chef and mushroom scientist in in one human being. Um, never met anyone else with that combo. Uh, and then Chris McLaughlin, uh, he co-founded. A, he's been in the sort of farming most of his career. Co-founded Australia's largest organic mushroom farm. Um, he was Young Farmer of the Year and Organic Farmer of the Year in Australia in 2018. Um, so yeah, Chris and Jim have got this deep technical expertise in mushrooms. Uh, and uh, yeah, I sort of come at it from the from the business side of things. So. Um, so yeah, together we developed our first product, which replicates those slow cooked meats that Jim grew up on, um, pulled pork and braised beef. Uh, yeah, the, the value proposition that we focused on in developing the product was yeah, number one, taste and texture. It's got to have the taste and texture of meat. It's got to cook like meat. Number two is price um, that people buy food on. So people aren't willing to pay a bit of a premium for meat alternatives at the moment, but not too much. And ultimately, if we want to end industrial animal agriculture, we want to produce products that taste as good as meat and are cheaper than meat. If you can do that, you can get even the most avid meat eater buying meat alternatives rather than meat. Um, and then the third piece of our value proposition is um, it's plant-based and it's in particular, it's healthy. So it's two-thirds mushrooms. The other ingredients are all natural plant-based ingredients. So it's not, nothing artificial. Uh, it's 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 clean, minimally processed, uh, and has all the be- health benefits of shiitake mushrooms, which are you know, in Chinese used in Chinese medicine for thousands of years as a really healthy ingredient, and a whole bunch of Western science um, speaking to all the health benefits of shiitake mushrooms. So, yeah, so that's the that's the product uh, we created. So we launched in uh, December uh, last year in partnership with um, Heston Blumenthal, um, the the British chef. Uh, so we launched in his, uh, it's now closed, but, but was open then dinner by Heston down in Melbourne and Heston is using the product in, um, the fat duck in London and perfectionist cafe in London. Um, so fat, fat duck, fat ducks, yeah, fat ducks, the three star Michelin, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was world's best restaurant in 2005 and, um, yeah. Yep. Wow. Incredible. And what was, what was his restaurant in Melbourne? Was that a temporary, uh, one? It's uh, no, it was it was a permanent one in the Crown Casino. Um, uh, so it was in the Crown Casino. It's probably there for sort of four or five years, but uh, yeah, closed uh, late late last year. Uh, closed early this year. Yeah, yeah. Well, what an incredible partnership! Having one of the most acclaimed. Well, obviously, you've got a, a phenomenal uh, team with your co-founders. But how how did you establish a relationship with one of the most renowned chefs in the history of the world to to help you launch this this uh, you know this whole new business? Yeah, so uh, so I guess it kind of came from two angles. So one, we we kind of designed the product for chefs um, to use. So it's a it's a it's kind of like it, I mean it is we designed it to be like a slow cooked meat is you know meat doesn't have a lot of base flavor. It's kind of the things that you do with it, the spices that you add, the sauces that you add into it to turn it into a dish. You know, slow cooked meats go great with barbecue sauce and and in curries and uh, and uh, yeah, Italian sort of pastas. Uh, bolognese, ragu, lasagna, things like that. So we kind of designed the product to be a good base ingredient for chefs to use. Um, We were fortunate that Jim, um, co-founder Jim, had gotten to know uh, Heston a couple of years ago just in the mushroom world. Um, Heston's been sort of getting into um, the kind of uh, brain-gut connection and uh, getting into all the health benefits of mushrooms. And um, 
uh, he and Jim had met through a mushroom Thai mushroom professor um, at, at this Thai mushroom professor's son's wedding in Thailand. <laughs> and so they, they met at this wedding, got on like a house on fire because they both live and breathe food. It was a real thrill for Jim actually because Jim... <laughs> Heston was the reason that Jim went and studied chemical engineering and agricultural science. So Jim had been working as a chef for 10 years. Um, was in, he'd never met Heston, but was just inspired by him and his like scientific understanding of cooking. And so that's what prompted him to go and study chemical engineering and agricultural science to, to understand the science behind what he was cooking. So yeah, when he met Heston at this, uh, this um, event and they got on like a house on fire and then I think it was even that same trip, Heston... And Jim went and visited some mushroom farms for a couple of days. Jim sort of took him around the the places that he um, that he was working with in in Thailand at the time. And so they got they got had this deep kind of personal connection and had gotten to know each other. And then once we developed the Fable product, um, we we took it and showed Heston, and yeah, he 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 absolutely loved it. Um, and uh, yeah, it was couldn't believe it was made from mushrooms and was super keen to work with it. So so that was yeah that real thrill for us and it's and it's been an amazing uh uh yeah kind of proof point for then when we go and talk to other chefs um that, yeah like it just makes it we've got heston on board conversations. <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 so that's for sure uh and what about what about you've, you've obviously done a fantastic job raising money with shoes of prey and now with fable uh what is it about your ability to go out there? Obviously, there's a lot more to the whole the whole picture, but what's the best way to raise money? And a lot of entrepreneurs who reach a point where they feel like they do need some external funding, should they be looking beyond just the money? So, yeah. So, I mean, my experience is just with raising money from venture capital firms. So, there's lots of other capital sources, but um, I can only re- really speak to raising money from venture capital firms. I mean, the thing, that's, thing that those firms are looking for, um, particularly in the early stages of a startup, is that there is a big, um, you know, like billion dollar um, market opportunity and, and opportunity with your business. Um, and so the things that are important to them are things like, yeah, market size. If, you, if you're successful and build a big business, is the market big enough to, for you to become a billion dollar plus valuation company? Um, product market fit. And in the earlier stages before you've launched, obviously you can't prove that but is there a sort of thesis that what you're developing is going to fit with a broad segment of consumers um, the founding team and what's their sort of background skill sets abilities and drive uh, to make this a success you know are there proof points that they're not gonna not gonna quit so you know are they fully committed to this are they deeply passionate about it that's where the whole doing something that you're personally deeply passionate about kind of helps you helps through the fundraising process as well um, yeah, so those are kind of the main things that they're looking for. And so if you can present something to them that um, that meets all of those criteria, um, they're, they're going to be interested to invest. Yeah. What about, what about these companies like Impossible Foods and Beyond, uh, you know, Beyond Meat? These are the companies that certainly here in America, they're, they're attracting massive amounts of attention. How do you feel about them with Fable and, and the other players that are in the industry? So it's it's actually great for us. Um, so going back to where we've differentiated, we're replicating a different type of meat to them in a slow cooked meat, um, and so we're, we're complementary rather than directly competitive with those those brands. So we've just recently launched into Singapore, um, and pre COVID, uh, we were we were starting to get into some restaurants in Singapore. And our distributor over there, basically, they, they also sell Impossible Foods in Singapore. And so they're pit, and, and Impossible has been really successful in Singapore. 
I think it's their best market per capita, um, some, something like that. But this distributor, basically their pitch to restaurants is um, if Impossible is working well for you, uh, you know, clearly you've got demand from consumers for a meat alternative. That's working well for your, uh, your ground beef or your burgers or now they're doing a ground pork. It's Impossible works well in those dishes. Um, what about your slow-cooked meat dishes? Um, you might want a meat alternative in there and here's Fable. So the cell is, um, we're not competing head-to-head um, and the fact that Impossible or Beyond are already in a restaurant um, makes the cell easier for us. Um, and then the second point of difference is our kind of, yeah, no artificial ingredients, minimally processed uh, piece. And so the, a lot of the chefs like that, they'll sometimes get customers in who are yeah, looking for uh, really minimally processed foods and want a meat alternative. And, and yeah, we, we, we fit, fit that bill nicely. So it's great that it's great for us that those companies are succeeding on a business level. It's great on a mission level because they're helping the same customer as us to reduce their meat consumption um, they've got all this money too behind them to help educate those consumers that, hey, there are these great meat alternatives out there. You should come and try them. Um, and they give me, going back to that market research piece, they give me the ability to go into a supermarket or a restaurant and watch how consumers are behaving and shopping these products. Uh, and so I can see and learn from that firsthand and understand more about where Fable can fit the market. I feel like every year there's there's more and more awareness around what healthy food is and giving people an idea into understanding an ingredient list. Like over here, there are uh, things like LaCroix, the sparkling water, where everyone's like, wow, this is amazing. It only contains natural flavors, which are natural. And then you realize that actually not all natural flavors are natural. And and I feel like it's your or fables only in a better position as, as time progresses, as a consumers are naturally just more and more of what they're putting into their bodies and they don't want a whole laundry list of ingredients into something that's supposed to be an alternative to 100 percent uh beef <laughs> yep yep no exactly yeah we kind of feel like we sit at the hopefully what will be the apex of two really big trends there's the meat alternative trend which is clearly very big um and then there's this whole yeah as you touched on this whole kind of health food trend and mush i think mushrooms is like this kind of bubbling up and coming trend like they are a crazily healthy food in the west western countries we eat uh, 2.3 kilograms, about five pounds of mushrooms per person per year. Um, in Asia, they eat 13 and a half kilos, uh, about 30 pounds of mushrooms per person per year. Um, and yeah, it's like a massive, massive difference. We In the Western markets, we should be eating a lot more mushrooms. Um, and so, yeah, we kind of see Fable as a way to help people reduce their meat consumption and replace that with, uh, with mushrooms, um, yeah, which is overall much, much better for you. What an incredible business. Well, what, what happens if, you know, if heaven forbid the stars don't align, would you, would you ever go back to the corporate world or could you ever go back to the, the corporate world after you've had the taste of freedom and rubbing, <laughs> rubbing shoulders with some of the real change makers around the world and the excitement of, you know, closing these venture capital deals and things? What, how do you feel about the idea of, of ever going back to the, the corporate world. Yeah, I mean, like you touched on before, there, there are a lot of attractive benefits to working in the corporate world, like nine to five, being able to have like uh, called hobbies. Is that what they are? Things <laughs> that you do outside of work. Um, I've kind of forgotten. Um, uh, like, yeah, but yeah, and, and a like consistent salary. Oh my God, that would be nice too. Um, so yeah, I would never write it off, uh, never write it off completely. But um, I mean, I think I, I yeah, I, when I was coming to the end of my time in Denmark, like I sat down when and, and realizing there were no jobs in Australia in alternative protein, I did a couple of interviews with recruiters um, looking at corporate jobs and 
it was kind of a horrible time because I had this sick feeling no matter what I did, sick feeling about starting another business and a sick feeling talking to these recruiters about going into the corporate world and the, the uh, sick feeling was a little bit less on the entrepreneurial side. So that's where I kind of ended up. Um, I don't know. If this failed again, maybe this, maybe I would be, it would be too much to go and try and start again a third time and maybe I would go back to the corporate world. But I think I'm, I'm, don't think I'm particularly built for it. Um, I hope no one I'm ever... If I'm ever going into the corporate world, I hope no one ever listens to this because I'm trying to say the opposite in my interviews. <laughs> well, wipe all the data online before you uh, before Please. you need to start handing handing your resume out. <laughs> all engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Let's now move into the win the day rocket round, where we ask you ten questions and you can just give a really quick answer. Number one: What quote inspires you the most? Um, there's a Steve Jobs quote that um, I always get the wording not exactly right, but it's something along the lines of if you're working on something that you really care about, um, you don't have to be pushed. Uh, the kind of vision pulls you and guides you. Morning coffee or evening wine? Uh, I like a bit of both, but if I've got to pick one, morning coffee. What's one bit of advice you would give your 18-year-old self? Uh, take Go like travel. I went through straight from high school to uni. Like go travel for a year and work out what it is that you're passionate about. I think that six months I had in Denmark uh, was amazing and it would have been actually smart to go do that when I was 18. Love it. Uh, What book do you gift the most? Uh, Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foa. I've probably given that to about 50 people. It's the book (laughs) that converted me to being vegetarian. That was the catalyst. That that one book was what uh, you made the decision. Yeah, I'd been getting there gradually, um, uh, but that book kind of tipped me over the edge. It's the best laid out case for anything I've ever read. I finished reading that book and it's like, I I just can't. There's nothing left that I can justify eating meat except the fact that I like the taste, but there is every other thing points to it's crazy to eat meat. I guess couples have to read it together because you don't want to have uh, (laughs) (laughs) sharing meals together, especially in quarantine, could lead to some interesting moments around the the breakfast, lunch, and dinner table. (laughs) (laughs) Was there there a vulnerability copy? So you're uh, you're sorted out. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Uh, was, Was there a vulnerability you once hid within that has ended up becoming your superpower? Oh, that's a good question. Um, no, I can't think of a. I can't think of a good thing. Plenty of vulnerabilities, but I'm not sure I've managed to turn any of them around to be a superpower. Do you have an answer to that yourself? No, I, I, I really don't. Well, I guess the, I guess the thing for me was, was when one of the biggest things that I really hit in was just these battles around anxiety because I feel like if you, if you come from a good family and go to a good school and you're. Uh, you know, raised in a place like Australia, you just feel like you've got all the ingredients to succeed. And when you feel like you're not at a level that's really your own expectations, but you feel like society is putting on you, it can create this whole heap of anxiety and really low feelings of of self-worth. And it was only once I got older, uh, even really in the last sort of four or five years, that I realized that enabled me to connect with a lot of people where I was then able to help inspire them from the circumstances and things that, that they're in. But I, I feel like any vulnerability, vulnerability disappears once we start to talk more. It's really more about shame around vulnerability starts to erode as we start to talk about that publicly. So I think some of the things that we're keeping deep within 
when you can have a, a wider, more public conversation around some of the challenges and adversities and things that you face and some of the things that are causing you shame, as long as you're having this conversation with the intent of having a productive outcome, then I think that can lead to being a superpower. Yeah, that's a good, good answer. Um, and actually that insight has prompted a related one for me of uh, the anxiety and fear of failing a second time uh, is a, is definitely a massive driver for me in fable. Um, and yeah, the, knowing what it was like thinking about going back into the corporate worlds, uh, not wanting to do, not wanting to do that is a, is a massive driver. So I think that that fear of failure uh, definitely pushes me to be up at 6am and yeah, yeah. Talking to, potential like I was this morning talking to potential customers in the US for Fable and yeah working late at night and yeah yeah that I think using that as a as a motivator is a is is helping it's a good time for question 6 what's one thing you've learned about failure uh it's not as you will come out of it on the other side um the fact i went from like some of the lowest periods of my life in the start, uh, the first half of 2018 when closing down shoes of prey to having the best year of my life in 2019 um, was just a massive, massive turnaround. Uh, and yeah, yeah, that knowing now, I think my resilience levels are much higher now, knowing that no matter what situation I find myself in, and no matter in the moment, this feeling might be horrible. Uh, you know, you can't, you can come out the other side in a, in a, in a even stronger place. And we'll, we'll link to that article or that post that you wrote from about 2019 too. I think that's a really interesting lesson that sometimes after, you know, after the, the biggest adversities that you go through, after what you had as such a public and such high stakes, knowing that the best year of your life was just around the corner uh, is such an incredible lesson, I think, for so many people. So I'll make sure we include a link to that. Uh, number seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone now or someone from history, who would it be? It's a good question. Um, uh this might be, I don't know if this is a weird answer and I don't want this to come across. I would uh, to talk, to sit next to and talk to Hitler and to try and like understand like how someone who, I mean, he was a clearly a very talented man, like an amazing orator, but how, like, why, why use those talents for, to do some of the most like evil, horrible things, um, that anyone has ever done in the world, like trying to eliminate a race like of people and, you know, cause tens of millions of people to die. Um, I think that I, uh, and I'd love to have a go at convincing him if, if it was like a time machine and I was talking to him before he did all that, trying to convince him to put, put your powers to like ending industrial animal agriculture or doing something good. <laughs> he could have been a good first business partner for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shit. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'd, uh, my trust levels would be low, but <laughs> I, think, uh, I think just trying to get into the mind of, some, of, of, of him. I mean, maybe it, it, maybe it'd also be a weird conversation. He might shoot me park bench, so maybe it's not a smart answer. <laughs> I think it would be fascinating. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or your business? Um, don't know about a tool or resource, but a tip uh, that I started doing a couple of years ago, which I think is becoming more common, so maybe more people are doing it. But when I send emails that I I want to follow up on, uh, if the person doesn't reply, which is probably more than half the emails I send. Um, different email software has different features for it, but setting a reminder for that email to come back in my inbox if the person hasn't replied, it's kind of turned into like a mini superpower for 
like fundraising, sales, um, uh, any just anything like that. Um, so I would say, you know, in my day-to-day, I'm sending like 60, 70 emails a day. I'd say like 40 or 50 of those, I put that little bounce back on. And most people will reply. But if they don't reply, it'll come in the box app. And I set the point in time at the point in time when when it would be co- I'd be comfortable following up with that person saying, oh, just checking in on the, on the email I sent. And that's just made like my whole existence so much more efficient. Oh, yeah. Without, I see so many entrepreneurs, I guess professionals, everyone really, if you're judging the quality of your day based on the emails that you're going to get back and also people who are sending an email and if someone doesn't reply, they automatically interpret that as a no to their request. When they might be ready to go, there could be a million reasons as to why they haven't responded in a timely manner or or responded at all. But if you follow up, it might just be a very, very valuable connection. So that's a that's a really, really good one. Uh, what's one thing on your bucket list? Um, I would love, yeah, I would love to see the end of factory farming. Um, uh, not even in my lifetime, but much, much sooner than the end of my lifetime. Yeah, that would be the, that's the kind of thing that drives me every day. And that, that's what, yeah, that's what I would love to see happen. And final question, what's one thing you do to win the day? What's one thing I do to win the day? Um, I think uh, connecting in with uh, other like talented, interesting people that have kind of good perspectives on the world and who are out there, you know, motivated with big visions, doing exciting things. I think, yeah, surrounding myself with people like that and being connected in with people like that is a, yeah, just massive from an inspirational perspective and um, yeah, helps, helps, helps in all sorts of uh, different ways. I love it. So much good stuff in there, Michael. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And before we finish, where can people go to learn more, uh, to learn more about you and Fable and all the other amazing things that you're doing? Yeah, so um, yeah, our website is fablefood.co. Instagram is probably the social media channel that we use the most for Fable. Um, Personally, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn um, or or Twitter. Um, Yeah, those are are probably the best. Awesome. We'll link to all those in the show notes too. Michael, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on and all the best with Fable and everything else you've got happening. Yeah, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Uh, awesome catching up with you. I hope you found that interview as powerful as I did. There's so many actionable steps that Michael spoke about and great lessons in there for all of us, especially in these uncertain times. If you want to be the first to hear about interviews when they go live, remember to hit subscribe. And if you enjoyed this conversation, share it with a friend or a loved one so they can benefit too. Before we go, just a reminder to check out wearepodcast.com. Get three days with the most successful podcasters and entrepreneurs on the planet. The world is different now. We know that. What worked last year is not going to work anymore. So if you're serious about wanting a successful future, come along to this event and get the latest strategies, blueprints, and resources from leaders at the absolute top of their game. They won't be holding anything back and you'll be able to ask as many questions as you like. Wearepodcast.com. It will be the best $200 you ever spend. I promise you that. That's all for episode 26. Remember to get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always. Always.